America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and street aligned with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. <laughs> but I quickly realized how wrong I was. <laughs> The first night I stayed at my friend's round-down apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were massacring doorbells and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came after me, and we married the next year. I, I also, <laughs> at that time, I also assumed just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> We were not Christian then. After years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his dental First year in dental school, he made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we shall all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded completely different. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of his death. Chris, he could cut me with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, 
Christopher, who was closest to me and my last ray of hope, had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live, so I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never been much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, God, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live in by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very excited. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her, this is not a good news. <laughs> this is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she has is not religion but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God also worked on me. So I decided to go to church with her. Then a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and the love for God and his word. Well, study the Bible in my church and in BSF, I also give my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. 
as our sankars were walk further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. <laughs> Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music and of sensitivity. And Satan cannot take with those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old. It was after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first sexual encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret. I came out of the closet and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. <laughs> not all gay men are promiscuous. Of course, some do, some do not. But I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's story. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. I knew if I wanted to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. I did that by selling drugs, and I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago, where we're from, down to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom knew when it comes to her kids, Nothing is more important than following Jesus. Even more important than education. Even more important than career. But the sad reality is, many people may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k, and in essence, we sometimes are making our kids do the same. Think about this. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, all good things. 
Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our children following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. But honestly, I was not very happy about my mom's decision. <laughs> she wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible, but not surprisingly, he refused, but left it on his country anyway. We found out later, as soon as we walk out the door, he take my Bible, threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with the over 100 prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold, but very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she will literally spend hours inside her prayer closet on her knees reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers. Um, following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day and there, 
I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I would never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet for Christopher, but the change was for me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is legal here, right? With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. <laughs> and she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. 
Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. (laughs) So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But mom's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul doesn't say that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she still had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator, a counting machine. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place (laughs) compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and just, if I could be totally blunt with you, I was doing everything that I could to stay to myself. I mean, think about it. I obviously did not want to mingle very much with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. I passed by this garbage can. And I looked at this trash. And if you've never been to jail before, they don't take the trash out every day. 
So it was a mound of trash. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. And I looked at this and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad has two doctorates. I was only three months, three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking this is the word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion. And it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed, chained, hands were chained around my waist, feet were shackled together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His silent and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us that he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, 
the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul what you After receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there in the bunk, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me 
that if God could have a plan for Judah in rebellion, in exile, he could have a plan for me. I had no, no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was just one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of. It was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But as I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very little about the Bible. And I thought to myself, I got to ask someone who studied the Bible way more than me, who's gone to cemetery, seminary. <laughs> the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. And I'm like, great, now I can have my cake and eat it too. Who needs to change? So I took that book in the hopes of finding not just justification, but biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you from a human perspective, I had every single reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant... I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture, looking for justification. I'm like, okay, if the chaplain says that it's okay, well, I want to read that for myself in the Bible. So I went through the whole Bible. I went through, I, I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked <laughs> and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? by freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. Amen. 
as the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves being unconditionally. That's true, right? But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity should not be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It's not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You see, before I had become a Christian, I thought to become a Christian, I thought I had to become a heterosexual. And what does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. <laughs> but I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality, it's the right direction, just not the right goal. Because if you think about this, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I'm heterosexual. <laughs> but neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're actually both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God says, be holy for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality, it's not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted. We're all going to be tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. God never promises you, oh, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted again. Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way and he's the holy one. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm tempted, not whether I'm struggling, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. 
So I called up collecting my parents, and I told my mom and dad, I said, I think God's calling me to full-time ministry. And I asked them to mail me an, an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into middle prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. And um, so amazingly, I was actually accepted. I was released from prison, <laughs> praise the Lord, miracle of many. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014. And then in 2011, I had the incredible privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally dim perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, but the best part of this all is how God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. This book now is in seven different languages, including Spanish, Chinese, Korean, over 120,000 copies in print. And there's a free eight-week discussion guide that small groups are using, that kids on college campuses are using, and even Christian schools are using the book and the study guide as a textbook. Our testimony is now a textbook. Who would have thought that? But I hope you realize this. It makes sense. Because our kids are being intentionally flooded with resources on sexuality. All from a non-Christian worldview. And as parents, as adults, we don't know what to do. They're hearing all these stories. They're hearing these stories. I'm so happy now. I'm finally who I truly am. I can now embrace myself. Let me be clear. God isn't so concerned about our happiness. He wants us to be holy. You can look through the whole Bible. Nowhere does it ever say, embrace yourself. If anything, it's embrace Christ. You know the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. It doesn't even belong in the hands of Hollywood. It doesn't belong in the hands of social media, TikTok. That's where our kids are getting most of their information. I'm not even worried about 
the Hollywood anymore. The kids are, that's what they're watching. That's what they're being influenced most. I mean, what, what do we call the, the social media stars? Influencers. That's one of the most accurate ways to describe what they're doing and, and be clear that they're not pointing, they're not influencing this younger generation toward Christ. You know who holds the responsibility to teach our kids about sex and sexuality? Parents. But parents, you need help. So you know who should be there to help? You know who else holds that responsibility? Not just parents, but grandparents. How many grandparents in this room? Raise those hands. You know why I'm adding you to that list? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, but others are like, I'm busier than ever. But let me tell you why, actually, seriously, I'm adding you, grandma, grandpa. Think back when you were younger, little kids, teenagers. How much did you or your peers listen to parents at that age? Maybe, grandpa, you actually have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using that or are we wasting it? Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our grandkids that are drowning in a tsunami of lies? Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's save this generation. How many want to save this generation? Let's see those hands from the men, grandfathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, mothers. Let's take it back for the world. Amen? Let's take it back. Because silence is no longer an option. I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma. And this is actually years back. And when we finished, this grandmother, this older lady made a beeline toward a book table. She's like, I need 10 books. She was really adamant. I was like, wow, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. She said, one for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She's like, I'm taking no chances. I've got grandkids from 8 to 20, and I'm going to mail every single one of them a book. I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother. That's a grandmother that's not giving away the responsibility, but taking that responsibility seriously. But I know some of you are thinking, I don't know where to start. What do I say? I mean, these grandkids, I mean, and don't think, you know, that, you know, when is it, when is it too early to talk to my grandkids or when is it too early to talk to my kids? That's not the right question in 2022. This is the right question. When is it too late? Especially, I mean, this is no Mecca of conservatism, right? Right? Am I, am I speaking truth or not? So to think that 16 is when you're going to have that sex talk is really naive. And actually, even nine, if you think nine is inappropriate, let me tell you the age I think. It needs to be five or even four or even three. 
if in nurse, you know, pre-K, they're already doing it. So we have to be engaging. But how do we do that? Well, I wrote my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, for all of us, for adults, to know what is sexuality, not just what, what don't do. Because unfortunately, sometimes the messages that we hear or the message we tell our kids is this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And those are important. But we cannot build a Christian life on God's no. What's God's yes? Well, it's quite simply chastity and singleness or faithfulness in biblical marriage. And that is good news for all. My book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, it came out right before COVID, and so it was a COVID book, so it kind of flew under the radar, but actually it was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. But in the two years that I've written that book, I, I realized I wrote this for adults and for college students and young adults. But we have to have something for teens. So right now I'm creating a video curriculum taking my 20-chapter book and turning it into 10 video lessons. That's going to be high-quality animations. It's going to be online. And if you would like more information on this curriculum, I'm actually doing several versions. I'm doing one from Christian schools, one from churches, but our biggest push is a version for families. It's going to be for parents and grandparents of teens. Because all the resources out there, and they're very few, but the few that are out there, resources are resources for youth groups, for churches, for Christian schools, none for the home. The place, the primary place that sexuality needs to be taught is not at school, not definitely not at public school, not even in youth group, not the primary place, that should be secondary, but in the home. And so this is the first of its kind, a resource for the home, putting the, drive, putting the parents back in the driver's seat, putting the parents and the grandparents back in the driver's seat. Who wants to be back in the driver's seat? Not letting the world drive our car off the road, but we're back in the driver's seat. Amen? Amen. So we're super excited about this. Uh, this will hopefully be out late fall by the end of the year. And so you can go there and you could go to uh, this website, holysexuality.com and put in your name and your email address so you can get contacted when it, when it comes out. But it's so amazing how God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world as a two-generational ministry. How cool is that? Talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has such a sense of humor because he had brought me back to Moody where for 12 years I taught in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to a professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, our story of our family seems pretty extraordinary and sensational. And you may summarize it something like this. You may tell others, I heard this story about a guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. And that is true. But actually, that's not the heart of my testimony. Let me tell you my testimony. I once was blind, and now I see. 
I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, there is nothing in us that could ever save ourselves. And you knew us. You knew that, God. So you sent Jesus, who is the answer. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, who lived a perfect life. Jesus, who died on the cross, who bore our sins. And it was Jesus that you rose from the dead on the third day so that we can live a new life. Lord, help us to not do things on our own strength. Lord, I pray for our children who need to know about Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would do all that we could to point them to you. But Lord, ultimately, we know that we can't save anyone. So Lord, do your good work in us and through us. Lord, we pray for all the problems in our lives, some that are not even in our home, or maybe there are distant relatives or close relatives or neighbors. Lord, do your work. Because we know Jesus came to seek and save the lost as he sought and saved us. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more than life. For it's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. And all of people, God's people said, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.